Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hey, Squirrel. How you doing? Very, very well. So I thought we were done with alignment, but you found something interesting. Well, I did. So we're going to do a little um, coda to our alignment series. And it's just something that came out that I thought uh, just really reflected well on things we talked about. And uh, I thought it was worth sharing. And this has to do with someone uh, who I've known for a long time in the Agile community, a fellow named J.B. Rainsberger. And you know, while we're in the middle of our series here, back on July 13th, he shared a blog post entitled XP, My Greatest Misses. And of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And he describes various mistakes uh, in 10 different uh, ways and, and places. And uh, it really seemed like a lot of those were uh, alignment problems. And so I thought it'd be worth us um, reflecting on those and relating them back to the, the lessons of our alignment series. Absolutely. Since we say learning is horrible and you should learn from mistakes and failure is good. And if you can't do it well, do it badly. That seems like we should be learning from mistakes in alignment. Yeah. And I think it's also just fantastic for JB to share this because not only does he share mistakes, but he also shares lessons learned. So um, from there, we've picked out uh, three anti-patterns, three things that he shares throughout the, the course of these 10 that uh, we, you and I both feel are, are very common, very typical problems that people run into on alignment that causes a lack of alignment. And also at the same time, three insights and lessons learned that he took away. And I think it's uh, the people can learn from. Excellent. Well, let's uh, start. Where do you want to start with anti-patterns or insights? Let's go with the anti-pattern route. Uh, it's got to get worse before it gets better. And I, I think partially that's because his very first uh, mistake he describes, uh, it, it's you can kind of get the sense of it in the, the title of his mistake. He called it, XP is better. You're stupid not to try it. Okay. Well, why don't I read that one out? <laughs> okay. And we'll, we, we've kind of picked out little quotes from each one. You really should read the whole article because it's absolutely worth, uh, worth learning from, from JB. But uh, here's a, a quote from the first mistake that I think captures the idea quite nicely. Once I'd become an XP, and some people might not even know what that is, extreme programming is uh, abbreviated to XP, and extreme programming is a flavor of agile development. Once I'd become an XP zealot, the natural next steps involved denigrating other ways of building software, as well as wondering aloud why people insisted on doing things, quote, the wrong way. This did not win friends, nor did it influence people. While I might have gained a few converts, I don't even know how many more people I alienated. That sound familiar to you, Jeffrey? Oh, absolutely. The energy and enthusiasm of the recently converted is uh, both a wonderful thing, but often also a terrible thing in the, the damage it can do. This attitude is very um, common and one that actually I came to, to understand very well through my conference, KitCon. Uh, and it was the, one of the most common things that I heard at KitCon when we would do aha moments. And at the end, people would uh, share their feelings from the, the day. Uh, and KitCon, by the way, is the Continuous Integration and Testing Conference. So we were doing this in 2006, uh, talking about CI and testing. And um, really, people 12 years ago, that was uh, much less common than it is today. And the most common... Uh, feeling that people expressed in the closing circle was it felt so good to, to be around other people who thought the way they did, that people who valued the things they valued and, uh, and people who really, who they might even say this, cared about doing things the right way. Uh, and uh, while on the one hand, that was great to hear that people found kind of their tribe there, that idea that uh, we had the right way and everyone else was wrong, uh, I felt was, was part of the problem. And that actually led me to doing a series of sessions um, where I would 
put up the sign that said, are you frustrated? It's probably your fault. <laughs> and say this, this attitude here, uh, as, as JB described, it does not win friends nor influence people. And if you do want uh, things to be better, then you also need to take some ownership for building the alignment and to not do that, to just write off people as, as stupid, um, or not caring is a, is a, a great way to, to make sure that, uh, they never come on side. So that was anti-pattern number one. Absolutely. And I've seen that a zillion times myself and made the mistake. Should we try for the next mistake? Yeah, absolutely. And how about I read this one out? Sounds good. We're going to jump down to what he described as mistake number four. And uh, he describes some dynamics on the team. And he says, after a while, it became apparent that we'd started steamrolling other members of the team, pushing practices on them they simply didn't like. We managed to live with a team member who would lean back in her chair, arms crossed, clearly disinterested whenever she should have been navigating while pairing. So I diagnosed that as a lack of joint design. So that person is not internally committed, our, our friend who's leaning back in her chair. Um, sometimes I've seen people ask, people in this meeting, are you here because you're interested? I can't remember quite how they put it. Maybe you know, Jeffrey, they, are you here because you're interested because you had to come or are you a prisoner? <laughs> and this person sounds like a prisoner. She's pri uh, imprisoned in a, in a pair doing pair programming. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. That's a great way to put it. Um, clearly someone who doesn't feel that they have a choice or a voice. And um, you can kind of, in a sense, understand why this would happen uh, if it kind of follows on that there's a group of people who in this case, we're very excited about doing extreme programming, very excited about doing all the practices. They, they didn't want to give up that idea that, you know, this is going to be fantastic and wonderful. And the, the problem is, you might have heard the phrase disagree and commit. You can only get to disagree and commit after people have had the chance to disagree. <laughs> and if you don't do that, then you also don't get the commitment. And of course, you don't get the benefit of their valid information. The disagreement is actually, in almost all cases, very, very useful. We were emphasizing that last week. If you don't see the commit the conflict, if you don't see the discussion and the different points of view, you're not getting the benefits and you're not actually going through the process of alignment. That's right. But a lot of times it's our, our fear about what will happen. We're so attached that we want things to go our way that we'd rather sort of bully people and steamroll them. And it's sort of unilateral control. Let's make sure I get the outcome I think is right. But you're, you're not uh, working towards an effective team. In fact, this is really right out of the book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, link in, in the show notes again, uh, where it describes how a lack of conflict, which is to say a lack of chance for people to disagree on the team, leads to a lack of commitment. If people haven't had their chance to argue, they, they are just simply not going to uh, work towards it. And that is one of the primary dysfunctions in a team. Uh, JB uh, brings up here, lack of alignment, lack of disagreement means they're not aligned on what they're going to try. Okay. Well, let's go on to the third uh, mistake before we go on to some of the lessons and things you can do about them. That mistake is, he calls mistake number eight. And in this case, what he had was team members who were being pushed to complete by a deadline. Not that anyone's ever seen that before. <laughs> Certainly a very common phenomenon. And what he says is these team members had lived in fear of the schedule for such a long time that telling them to throw away the clock, in other words, to ignore the schedule, did nothing more than to tell them to prepare for the next beating. <laughs> Without genuine endorsement from a manager they trust, trusted, I think he means, what they would simply not take ignoring the, the schedule seriously enough to take time to learn, practice, and grow. I now see it as naive to ex have expected them to do otherwise. 
this this one I really like because not only does he get across the lack of alignment with his team members, but when you go back and look at the what he, the title of this mistake, which was ignore the schedule with or without the business's permission, he was pretty explicitly uh, trying to work without alignment, and uh, he he rightly put it down to kind of a a fear of discussing with the business. I think this particular one resonated with you, and is that right, Squirrel? It does. Uh, I remember uh, my second role as CTO, VP Engineering, senior leader, I came into a team that had been beaten just like this and had, in fact, there was one person on the team who was so beaten down from this and earlier jobs that he actually uh, had really serious difficulties and would kind of stand up in the middle of the day and throw his keyboard on the floor and march out. He, he was really, really, um, post-traumatic stress disorder was a serious problem as far as we could tell for him. And so I thought, oh, great, I'll make this better. I know exactly how to make this better. What I'll do is I'll figure out what are all the things we could be doing. We'll get the team's opinion on each one and how long it might take, and then we'll pick two or three of them to do, and they'll be in control. It'll be great. And so I marched the team into a room and sat them all down and said, hey, here are 10 things. What do you think about doing all of these? And this guy stood up and said, I quit in a nice, big, loud voice. <laughs> Why? He said, I can't do this anymore. You're just like all the others. I said, I'm really trying not to be. So I sent everybody else out and I sat him down and said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, we can't possibly do all 10 of those things. That's ridiculous. You know, you're just like everybody else. He literally couldn't hear me say that what I wanted him to do was tell me how hard each one was so we could do a reasonable number of them. So he had been so beaten that he couldn't get to that point. So I hadn't gone nearly far enough to where he was in order to jointly design with him a solution. Once he understood it, he thought it was great. We proceeded very well and he became less stressed. But I always remember how he literally couldn't hear me say something that was different to what he expected and he heard it as what he expected. Right, and that's taking the time to understand where he was coming from was really important for getting alignment about how you're gonna go forward. Or even what language you were going to use. <laughs> he, he couldn't understand the language I was using. I had to explain it really carefully so that he'd get that I didn't mean let's do all 10 things. Right. Yeah. He associated a big list of 10 things with we must do all of those by ideally next Friday. Because that was the, the what had been beaten into him from all his prior experience. Exactly. I think uh, in the past we've, we've talked about sometimes the, the phrase learned helplessness. When people, even when they have a, the opportunity to do something different, they've been so traumatized by past experience that people don't even try anymore. This guy definitely had that. Okay, so you know, JB talked about his experiences here. Now, good news is he learned from all of this, and there were three insights that we wanted to, uh, or lessons that we thought were especially worth sharing that are most typical around the, the topic of an, uh, alignment and, and its importance. Um, so let's let's move into those. You want to take our our next one? Sure. So the title of this one is "I Don't Need Facts to Build an Argument," and he's describing the mistake. But then he's going to describe how he recovered from not needing facts to build an argument. And he says, "Eventually, I began to understand the value of sharing experience and of highlighting the differences between my experience and my opinion. This way, I began to build, not erode, credibility." I really like the bit about describing the differences between his experience and his opinion. I don't think I do that enough. I think I tend to just describe my experience and then say, well, of course, my opinion matches this perfectly. And in fact, it doesn't. <laughs> this really gets the idea that um, 
the idea that by sharing your experience, you're putting it out there so people can have more of an understanding of where you're coming from, as opposed to simply we should do this or we should do that. Uh, um, you're kind of saying this in a sense through your stories about your experience. Well, this is what I value. This is how I got here. And actually, if you think back to your last story, th that hearing the the stories of people's prior experiences, kind of what was missing uh, from this other person, we, you you didn't necessarily know his prior experience, uh, and uh, and and therefore you were speaking the same language by by sharing your experiences. You begin to develop more of that. And that's normal. I think humans learn from stories. So it's uh, the idea of that sort of storytelling, I think, is a good way to, to build a common language and for people to start to have um, see each other as three-dimensional. And this reminds me of uh, Roger Schwartz's Eight Behaviors for Smarter Teams. I think, as usual in the show notes, he describes at least two of the behaviors, which are very definitely related here. And it's interesting what order he puts them in. He says, first, share all relevant information. That's one of the eight behaviors. And then a later behavior is explain reasoning and intent. So you're giving the information, in this case, by means of a story. And then you're explaining how you got to your opinion from that experience. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of, in a sense, sort of separates that experience and opinion. I, I had this experience that's relevant and relevant information, and then that's led to this opinion, uh, which is the reasoning intent. So, and I think if you put that together, it's kind of, you're taking people on the whole journey to how you got there rather than just sharing the punchline. Indeed. And therefore microservices are e evil <laughs> or, or awesome or what, whatever it is. Or whatever. Yes. Indifferent. Okay. Uh, onward to another lesson learned. So this is a mistake where he believed that silence was consent. So he was just going ahead and explaining things in a certain way and it wasn't working so well. And when he found out more, he said, it, it turns out that I was making a number of team members feel defensive with my straightforward style. This woke me up. It reminded me to put effort into maintaining personal relationships in my work. The thing about this one is that the idea of personal relationships, in a sense, well, what does it have to do with alignment? But the fundamentally, we're going to be dealing with people here, and your relationships with them actually are very important. And uh, there's a, a quote from the early, early days of Agile that is stuck with me forever, and it's uh, attributed to Brad Appleton. And it was the first thing to build is trust. Uh, and if, if we don't, if we don't have that, then it's going to be very hard to do any of the other things that we describe, any of the things we advocate, if there's a, a lack of trust. Indeed. And I have a client at which I'm coaching two different people to do exactly this. They haven't built enough personal relationships, so I need them to go out there and build them. And they say, but I need to do my work. I say, congratulations, <laughs> you have a new job. Your work is go build these relationships. Right. And we, we, That's quite a shift for them. We, we talked about this last week also. We were doing some training on your first 30 days as a manager, and we, we talked very much about the importance uh, as uh, as a manager of building relationships both with the people who work for you but also the people who work with you the other people in the organization and it's a it's it's a, a, just a critical uh, element to have those relation those relationships indeed people think the hardest part of being a manager is managing your team and executing and getting stuff done actually the hardest part is going to people who don't report to you and building relationships with them so you can get stuff done with them. Because when you tell them that you don't like what they're doing, sometimes they say, well, go jump in a lake. <laughs> they don't have the same reaction that people in your team do, which is at least to give you a little bit of respect to start with. So you have to build a relationship so you have that respect and you can have that interaction and build alignment. 
That's right. I think it passed the point of question of, and who are you again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just want to know. So Good I can, not to start there. I know who I'm telling to go jump in the lake. Indeed. Uh, so coming to our last uh, insight lesson learned, I think this one is a, a great one to end on uh, because it's so core and so critical. It's from what he described as mistake number 10, which he described as forget the people, which he also said was kind of an all pervasive uh, mistake that he was making. And he sums it up to say, People lie at the center of software development, using inhumane techniques to teach them humane programming seems risky and invites failure. I, I might strengthen that. I might say is doomed. <laughs> I, I've never had any success with that method and tried it a number of times. Well, I remember there's always the, the chance to get lucky. We should always remember that you, 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 you might get lucky. I have not got lucky. I haven't won the lottery either. So, you know, my, my odds, I think, are pretty similar. But more seriously, the, the notion here is that if you are working with the other people rather than with the practices, you will get a lot further. And that's what we've been talking about for the whole six months we've been doing this podcast. That's right. When we talked about uh, the practices here of um, uh, to build alignment and having the joint design and doing the two-column case study, uh, we, we were talking about trying to address human needs. And that's really why we advocate what we do around uh, mutual learning model and um, psychological safety, developing a learning culture, all of these things, because really it's it's about uh, how, to, how do people uh, relate to one another. If you don't understand that, then you're going to be have very difficult uh, time trying to make change and make the kind of improvements that you would hope to make. A good friend of ours, Mark Coleman, says, you went to school to, to learn computer science and you got a degree in computer science and nobody got around to telling you that you were going to have to do difficult emotional work. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that you are. <laughs> and I'm glad he is because he's right. The other quote that's uh, that's good on this one is uh, the title of an article by Alistair Coburn called, uh, and I hope I've got the title right, Characterizing People as a First-Order Non-Linear Component of Software Development. <laughs> I, I might even say characterizing people as the primary first-order non-linear component <laughs> of software development. Yeah, that's that's such a great title from the early days of Agile. I think this one predates the term Agile, but it, the, the whole idea that um, actually as we look around, it's it's not always the process we're using. It's not always the tools we're using. Actually, maybe people are kind of important also. <laughs> that was a, an early- Just maybe. Er, early insight. And, uh, and I think that's a, a, a great one. Uh, for us to end on with the, the idea that uh, this is this is really why we talked about uh, alignment being so important because you are dealing with people and if uh, if the people aren't aligned then you're really going to not be effective uh, at anything you're trying to accomplish. Indeed. Okay, so I think we've said enough about alignment, but you're going to hear a lot more about it in future podcasts, I'm sure. But I think our next one may actually be on a different topic. So if you're if you're tired of alignment, that's okay. It's still very important, but uh, we'll we'll move on to something else next time, really, unless we read another great article. Yeah, that's right. Someone might drag us right back. <laughs> but... Indeed. And of course, we love listener questions. We have a little backlog of them. Maybe we'll try to get to one next time. But we'd love to hear from you at troubleshootingagile.com. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, we'd love to react to them because our favorite thing to do is to respond to real world stories and bring in all the techniques and ideas that we have to apply to troubleshooting Agile. All right. Thanks, Squirrel. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey.